Oscar bait, a phrase that immediately brings certain types of films to mind. Biopics, period pieces, melodramas, musicals. For decades, these types of films have had a monopoly on Oscar nominations. And the 1992 ceremony was no different. In fact, every category I just mentioned was represented. But there was also another film, a genre film. A psychological thriller billed as horror featuring sadistic serial killers, cannibalism, and perhaps the most menacing movie monster ever on screen. And not only did The Silence of the Lambs win Best Picture against all odds, it also swept the big five categories, picture, directing, lead acting, and screenplay. A feat that had only happened twice before and has never happened since. Did this level of success usher in a new appreciation of horror movies or genre movies in general? Of course not. The Silence of the Lambs was one of only six horror movies ever nominated for Best Picture, and to this day remains the only that has ever won. Hello and welcome to For Your Reconsideration, the podcast where we re-examine Best Picture races and give ourselves the authority to determine if the Academy got it right. I am Devin. And I'm Kyle. And we're your hosts. And this week we're going to be discussing the 1992 Oscars, which were honoring films that came out in 1991. So uh, we were alive in 1991, right? Yeah. But I don't really remember it because I was little but <laughs> so here's a little refresher in case there's do you think there's people listening who weren't alive in 1991 i doubt it stay in school <laughs> okay so uh george hw bush was the president uh the gulf war was happening on january 17th uh, operation desert storm began do you remember that okay no Devin. well it happened and then by february 27th uh, George but George H. W. Bush announced that Kuwait was liberated. So I guess that was the end of the Gulf War. Yeah, it was pretty quick. It was a it was a short one. Um, on March third, an amateur video captured the beating of Rodney King by Los Angeles, California police officers, which obviously uh, later led to some riots after they were not charged with anything. On July 22nd, 1991, serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested after the remains of 11 men and boys were found in his Milwaukee, Wisconsin apartment. And the police soon found out that he was involved in six more murders. I didn't know it was an apartment. That had a smell. Yeah. Is that what he got the police called on him for? Yeah, it definitely smelled super bad. <laughs> for sure. Um, which also I feel like that does tie into some things we're going to have to talk about regarding movies this year and then beauty and the beast <laughs> yep mm-hmm. jeffrey dahmer directly relates to beauty and the beast hmm. mm-hmm. that's interesting and then on august 23rd the super nintendo entertainment system or as it's commonly known super nintendo was released in the united states why did you have that first part well i don't know that's how it was written oh okay so these are just pulled yeah and just placed right into your notes yep that's cool. how that's called research, Kyle. Is that, that's how you do is that it. What research you copy and paste is? from Wikipedia and then read it right. out loud. Hmm. Yep. So that's a little little background about what was happening in nineteen ninety one. Some bad stuff and then uh Nintendo. <laughs> so some stuff uh the year in film. There wasn't a lot of like fun stuff to go over, so I'm just gonna read to you the the top ten movies 
by box office gross domestically. Number 10 was City Slickers. Number nine was Hot Shots. Number eight, Cape Fear, The Addams Family. Number six, JFK. And number five, The Silence of the Lambs. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then we have Hook. Beauty and the Beast comes in at number three. Number two, we have Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, not to be confused with Prince of Tides. And at number so one. that is one. Okay. And number one is Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Hmm. Do you disagree with that? Yeah, that makes sense. Man, Kevin Costner had a busy year. Kevin Costner had a busy decade. I just think in the 90s he was working. He was working a lot. And this is just fresh off of Dancing with with Wolves, right? Yes, it's the year after Dances with Wolves. Wow. So So he was Robin Hood and then he was uh, JFK. He was, he was garrison. He didn't play JFK. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I already forgot what that movie was. It's okay. That happens. Some notable people who made their film debuts in 1991, and I limited this to Oscar winners. Thank God. <laughs> Halle Berry, Leonardo DiCaprio, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Heath Ledger. Gwyneth Paltrow and Reese Witherspoon. Wow, a lot of mainstays. Yeah, yeah. Except for Heath Ledger. Well, he would be. I mean, I think he would still be making movies now if he were alive. Also, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Probably. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot he died, too. Yeah. Dang, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. All right, I got lots of lots and lots of facts. This was a historic Oscar ceremony. God, both, sorry. Both those actors did die, like, and they had so much more ahead of them, I'm sure. Oh, I know. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman at least had like a longer career than yeah. Roger did. Well, they started at the same time. What are you talking about? Oh, you mean like because he lived a little longer? Yeah. Oh, that's true. If they made their debut yeah. in the same year, I guess I was like, yeah. I just because like he was older, I was like, right. well, but I guess that's that's fair. They literally started the same year. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, so they, he had some a little bit more time than Heath Ledger for sure, but I just still feel like he made died more way too young. Also, well, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, what? I just feel like Phyllis Hoffman made more movies also. Oh, well, probably. I mean, they're both tragedies. Sure. Okay. Do you want to hear some Oscar facts? Yes. So the 1992 ceremony was hosted by Billy Crystal, one of his like 80 times that he hosted. Sure. Um, as I mentioned up at the top, The Silence of the Lambs became the first horror film to win Best Picture. And it was also the first film to be released on home video prior to winning Best Picture. Ooh, okay. So it came out like really early in the year. I think it, it came out on Valentine's Day, actually. Which That's awesome. Funny. Yep. Um, and I, as I said, it was the only, the third film to win the big five major categories. Do you want to know what the other two pictures were? Why not? Um, it was It Happened One Night from 1934 and One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest from 1975. Oh, cool. Wow. Mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast was the first animated film to be nominated for Best Picture. Um, and at this time, there was still not a separate category for animated features. So it didn't have, like, a, ch- a chance. Yeah. <laughs> um, with her Best Actress win, Jodie Foster became the second person after Louise Rayner to win two Oscars before age 30. Wow. Boys in the Hood's John Singleton became the first African-American to be nominated for Best Director. And at 24, he's the youngest nominee in that category. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. That's interesting. 
Mm-hmm. You know, when I was reading that, I was like, wait, but wasn't, but Damien Chazelle is just the youngest person to win, right? So they're saying he's the youngest to be nominated. Okay. Which I can't imagine anyone younger than 24 being nominated ever. How old was Damien Chazelle when he was nominated? He was like, he's like 34. Oh, is he really? Yeah, but he, he was, was the youngest person to ever win. He looks like he's director. 16. Yeah, he is. Oh, he's the youngest person to ever win. That's crazy. Yeah. Nominated for Best Supporting Actress and Best Lead Actress, respectively, Diane Ladd and Laura Dern became the first mother and daughter nominated in the same year. And they were both nominated for the same movie, Rampling Rose, where they played mother-daughter. Wow. Mm-hmm. Several days before the ceremony, LGBT activist groups such as Queer Nation and Out in Film announced plans to stage a protest outside the theater. The organizations were voicing their complaints regarding derogatory and unflattering portrayals of homosexuals in films like Silence of the Lambs, JFK, and the upcoming film Basic Instinct. On the day of the telecast, several protesters carried various signs that contained statements such as Stop Hollywood's Homophobia and Hollywood Stop Censoring Our True Queer Lives. One man who had purchased tickets to the ceremony yelled statistics regarding AIDS in protest as John Candy was introducing a best song performance. The protester was immediately escorted out by security without any arrests, and his remarks were not heard during the broadcast. Hmm. So, a little bit of um, controversy, I guess. That is interesting. Which, I don't know, I feel like I'll address that when we talk about those films, because I do think that they had some valid arguments about the way sure. people were being portrayed. But we shall get to that. Do you want to start talking about some movies? Please. So you look like you're about to fall Sitting asleep. Sitting in silence over here. Well, you could you could chime in anytime. I know, but then it just takes longer. Okay. <laughs> you don't want to spend time with these lovely people? I mean, our listeners? I mean, yeah. I mean, they'll hear me. Okay. Well, the first movie we're going to discuss is The Prince of Tides, directed by Barbara Streisand. Synopsis, a troubled man talks to his suicidal sister's psychiatrist. That's, say, that's say that five times fast. His suicidal sister's psychiatrist about their family history and falls in love with her in the process. Which is a bit of a spoiler, actually, that last part. Right. Like, that's kind of a weird synopsis because that is like a part of the plot. Right. It's like. That takes a while to get to. I don't know. I feel like they had chemistry from this jump. Well, yeah, I guess. So it's based on the 1986 novel, the same name by Pat Conroy, who co-wrote the screenplay with Becky Johnson. Although the film, its cast, and its crew received many nominations for Academy Awards, Best Director was not among these, while Best Picture was. At the Oscar ceremony, host Billy Crystal sang to the tune of Don't Rain on My Parade, Did This Film Direct Itself? (laughs) The following year, when A Few Good Men joined Prince of Tides and the previous year's Awakenings and being nominated for the latter award but not the former, Columbia Pictures president Mark Hinn issued a statement, quote, this is unfortunately the third year in a row that Columbia has had a film nominated for Best Picture that seemingly directed itself. And I would like to point out that of those three films, two of them, Awakenings and Prince of Tides, were directed by women. Yeah. Which I don't think is a coincidence in the fact that they weren't getting nominated Damn. for Best What was director. the other film? A Few Good Men. Oh, A Few Good Men. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Damn. Mm-hmm. Was, uh, yeah, Awakenings was Penny Marshall, right? Yeah. Yep. Damn, that was a good movie. <laughs> it was. <laughs> uh, Jeez, Devin. Cricket. I'm just. <laughs> Sorry, I was reading. You're reading? <laughs> Usually when you read, you talk. 
Well, that's it. That's all I have to say. The, what were you reading? I was reading another fact, but now that I'm rereading it, it's dumb, so I'm just not going to hmm. include it. Let's do that before we record. Probably. Well, uh, I just want to say up front in case this gets weird. Like, I had done a lot of research and then somehow lost that document and then had to redo research. So it maybe isn't as uh, concise as it usually is because mm. I had to redo it. <laughs> just FYI. A little peek behind the scenes. Yeah. There we go. Oh, yeah. Prince of Tides. Do you want me to start? I've been talking. You talk about Prince of Tides. <sighs> what is there to say, really? You know? No. Uh, this is a great podcast. Yeah. I mean, it is a book adaptation that feels like a book adaptation, but in like the best of ways. Uh, you can kind of, I think it's, it's, I actually think it's brilliantly directed yeah. uh, by Barbara Streisand uh, and really just captures the feeling of a really good novel. Like, and how it's told with voiceover narration, with flashbacks to this kind of like parallel storyline going on um, as, as they were kids, because this plays, uh, kind of as a thread throughout the the entire movie is this this event that happens when they were children really affected who they are today obviously uh, especially with the recent suicide attempt of of his sister um yeah nick nolte is kind of the star of the show here along with barbara streisand who plays the aforementioned uh psychiatrist uh nick nolte you know not gonna lie haven't seen a lot of his work you know, I think he was really, obviously really big in the 90s. Right. Um, mostly kind of like what he's known to our generation is that mugshot. Yeah, In, in exactly. a big, bad way. You know, uh, these movies that he's in aren't all necessarily classics, even though he, he was in a lot, obviously, in the 90s. But, you know, we just don't kind of catch up with them uh, in this era. But, I mean, his his role as Tom Wingo in the movie is just, he kills it. He really mm -hmm. is, he's empathetic, like... I'm with him the entire time. Honestly, I think he's given a fantastic performance throughout. And the same goes for Barbara Streisand, who, again, I don't have any kind of, um, I kind of follow Barbara's music career. You should. So, so I'm watching this and I'm like, legendary. I'm not seeing the Barbara Streisand that I'm sure most people see. So I really didn't have to like peel away any layers. I just think she gave like a really honest great performance you know and especially obviously being the director behind the camera as well like i thought she handled both duties quite well um yeah i'm actually looking forward to seeing more i know she's got a few more under her belt too right did she direct it yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah i'd be curious to check those out after after seeing the princess tide the prince of tides um but yeah uh this was probably the one i was looking forward to the least and ended up you know, as one I, one I enjoyed the most. Really I, just surprised. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. It's okay, you go ahead. Well, well was, another thing I wanted to mention was, uh, no, uh, honestly, I just, I, I, would, I would highly rec recommend this movie for anybody who may have missed it or any of our younger listeners who have maybe never even heard of it. All you people that weren't born yet in 1991. Right, yeah. All you youngins. <laughs> but I'm sure uh, just I just want to clarify we were two in 1991 which is yeah why this kind of flew under the radar for so many years but <laughs> yes. um yeah have a watch what do you think what do you think Devin well yeah well the reason I started to interrupt you is like to jump off that thing you know I think a lot of times when we're watching movies for this podcast I I can't help but be a little biased going into stuff and usually like this was a movie this was the only movie on this list that I'd never heard of prior to going into this and so like there was a part of me that was like 
oh, I've never heard of this movie, so it's probably not that good, you know? Yeah. Which is the exact same thing that happened to me with Awakenings. I was like, I've never heard of Awakenings. Right, right. It's probably nothing, and then I, like, loved it. And I feel like the same thing happened to you. I didn't love it, but I ended up enjoying it so much more than I thought I was going to. And, like, really, really liking it. And I think that it is a really great movie. And I do think it's well-directed, and the performances are great. And I I think what you said, too, about it being... um, like it's very obviously an adaptation of a book, but in the best way, because it does have like this, there's a lot of flashbacks and there's kind of this like central mystery that's going on that really like drives the story. And I think it's revealed really well. So it's like this mystery and this love story, but it's like a complicated love story. And it also just like makes me think of like, watching these movies from the nineties, I'm just like in the nineties, they really just like made movies for adults that weren't right. Like superhero movies. They weren't like super violent or anything. You know what I mean? It's just like, they were stories about adults. They were complex characters handling adult situations. And I'm just, they just, I feel like they don't make movies like that anymore. And so watching a lot of these movies on this list, especially Prince of Tides, I'm just like, I wish that more movies like this were made still today. Well, more people need to go to the movies. That would, well, that would yeah, that would help because they think the only way to get people into theaters is by having a big, you know, spectacle. Right. And that's why all we get is superhero movies. Right. And it, I think it goes to show, too, such movies like this are so many throughout the history of what we've watched so far. When you base something on a novel, especially like a best-selling novel, like novels tend to dive deeper into characters and who they are. And mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Rather than just a 140-page superhero script, to use that you know analogy again. Right. Like, yeah, these superheroes have a shitload of history, but we're only getting, you know, what we've, for most part, people are only getting what they've seen on screen thus far. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I fully agree with that with that sentiment. Um, even if they just, I wouldn't even care. Hey, keep basing stuff off of books. Right. I think this, and you know, as I'm thinking right now, I feel like this, the like plot, the story of Prince of Tides, like today would be like a limited series on TV. Like that's where those types of stories are going is on TV. Right. So I, I don't know, I guess things are just changing. So I don't really know what my point is, except that I really enjoyed Prince of Tides and uh, <laughs> you should probably watch it. And also Barbara Streisand um, is great. She she killed me with a certain line in this movie. And yeah. I, I would recommend the watch just for that. You'll know what I'm talking about when you hear it. She has a lot of great lines. It's a well-written movie as well. There's a lot of like really great one-liners. Mm-hmm. Adapted from the book by the author himself. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is always cool to see. Like, I love how Gillian Flynn is, like, getting so much writing work now. Yeah, absolutely. Because obviously not only is she a good uh, novel writer, but apparently they're really loving her screenplay work. So mm-hmm. that's really cool. She's good. And teleplay now with uh, Sharp Objects. Yep. Uh, so you want to hear what other people thought about Prince of Tides? Sure. Well, it has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 70% and a critic score of 73%. Which is a little low. Mm-hmm. Low. As far as its legacy, it's never really been named to any notable lists. And at the box office, it made $110 million. Wow, that actually sounds like a lot of money. Yeah. It did well. Well, and see, and then back then, movies like that would make $110 million. Like right. today. Because it sure didn't cost $100 million to make. No, no. I, would, I wouldn't venture to guess it was over 40. 
So, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's a big profit when you could make movies for $40 million. That's true. Hell, some of the best movies are made for under two. So, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry. All right. So our next film is JFK directed by Oliver Stone, um, produced by Warner brothers synopsis, new Orleans just, wow. Okay. One more time. What was that? One more time. The synopsis is New Orleans district attorney Jim Garrison discovers there is more to the Kennedy assassination <sighs> than the official story. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> so the film was adapted by. <laughs> wow. Sorry. Let's go. The film was adapted by Oliver Stone and Zachary Schuyler from the books On the Trail of the Assassins by Jim Garrison and Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy by Jim Mars. Stone described this account as, quote, a counter myth to the Warren Commission's, quote, fictional myth. Mm. Uh, The film contributed to what's known as the JFK Act of 1992 that moved the release date of classified documents from the Warren Commission from 2029 to 2017. So some of those, those documents were released last year, although some documents still remain classified due to national security and the information released did not support any popular conspiracies. Dang. Yeah, not saying. Terrifying. So JFK. What about it? Um, I, I do want to say real quick, Prince of Tides was made for an estimated $30 million. Oh, wow. While JFK was made for an estimated $40 million. Wow. That's crazy considering the scale up. From... That's a lot of people that weren't working for their normal rate. Then. Yeah, right. Because... <laughs> Because if there's one thing we're about to talk about, there is a lot of people in this damn movie. There are some people. It is a deep bench over on JFK. <laughs> it is. Uh, this is one of the movies that I was like, again, I hadn't seen it, um, but I was very much looking forward to it. One, because I find JFK conspiracies uh, interesting. My dad is a big JFK conspiracy theorist. <laughs> Where so does I, he side? Um, like he's got to pick his own picked his own theory by now, right? Yeah, I feel like he he believes the Oliver Stone theory. Oh, okay. I believe. Your I dad, tried to convince him on my other the theory, and he wasn't having it. So convince him of what? The, the theory that I subscribe to, oh, which God. I can talk about later if anyone Jeez. cares. But um, <laughs> dating a crazy person. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. I'm not saying that everything they said was true. It's just like the fact that you said you subscribe to a theory is. is, is Well, I do. I think that if anything, you're making me jump ahead to my point. (laughs) We can wait. We can wait. You will later validate yourself. Okay. I don't even remember what point I was trying to make now, though, because you've interrupted me so many times. Oh, you're trying to make a point now? Yeah, I was in the middle of talking. You're talking about your dad and I jumped in about your dad. I was just saying because of that, I was looking forward to this movie. Okay, yeah. And uh, I was I was a little bit let down by it because and see, I feel like this movie, it's hard to separate it as a piece of art, as a film. And then like my own feelings about JFK and the assassination. Do you know what I mean? It's hard to like I can say like I like aspects of the film and the way things were like edited and the way and some of the performances and that kind of stuff, but it's hard for me to say like, oh, I really enjoyed this movie because I think that I have a problem with the way some things were presented that are not accurate. So, 
like that Vincent D'Onofrio gets like a billing and then is only in the movie for like 1.5 seconds. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. <laughs> okay. Because I, I was presented with something that came to be fully inaccurate. Yeah, that was weird. I was like waiting for him to come back. Yeah, like, I thought wh- he was going to have like a bigger part. Right. Like, why he must would you have... put his name above like in the credits? Right. He must have had something else that year have been popular in some way to get a credit on this movie. Because he, he literally has like two lines and he's in like five seconds. Yeah, he's movie. in like what looks like it's, it's just like archival footage, but it's not obviously. It's right. And then it's, he never comes back. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was cut. Maybe he ended up on the cutting room floor. But then they cut his name They're from like, the credits. What? Then cut his name from oh, the credits. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's true. Maybe that was in his contract. Maybe. I don't know. You wouldn't think at three hours and nine minutes that they had cut anything from this movie. Oh, the original, like, it, I think it was, like, way longer. The way first longer? Time. Well, I know, like, Dang. the first script was, like, it was, like, a run, it would be a runtime of, like, over four hours. Wow. Yeah. Well, they really pack a lot in there. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. No, I'm well aware. And I do think it is, like, a... For as long as it was, it it felt more, I don't know, it didn't feel short. I won't say that, but like, I don't know. It didn't feel as long as some other things that I've watched that have been three hours. Sure. Long. I mean, it moves. Like if it's an Oliver Stone movie, it moves. Right. Like there's no denying that, but it's also an Oliver Stone movie. So it's also like takes a goddamn lifetime to watch. Yeah. It's really long. But anyway, let's. Why are we just complaining about the length? You want to talk about it? Um, well, I feel like I don't know what else to say. Like, I really, well, I made my point. Like, my point was that you know, it's it's just it's hard for me to separate how I feel about what the information he was presenting and the way that it was presented. Right. Because I mean, it is only giving you one theory. It's unfortunately like okay, it's a movie all about a theory. That is like, I know that in the end, it's, its intention is almost like make, make you question, re, you know, whether like what is true from this or what isn't, what is true about the actual event, what isn't, and then just stuff like that in general, like questioning your government. But like, yeah, the whole time it does make you subscribe to this just like one theory. It leads you along the way of that. But like, mm-hmm. you have so many questions of your own or and all this, and at the end of the day, nothing is answered, and it's it's told from a very odd point of view that it may seem i guess historically important or maybe i'm sorry maybe it is historically important but at the end of the, it's just like it falls flat to me at the end with just this court proceeding that doesn't even rule in their favor but however maybe opens the doors for uh you know more stuff like this to take place but it's just like that is not something cool to lead up to like it just yeah and i think that you know um I completely forgot where I was going with what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. What were we talking about? <laughs> well, the movie, uh, JFK. Yeah. Uh, but, like, I mean, I'll say again, like, obviously, they don't want to just, like, create a ton of stuff out of nothing. This stuff actually did happen with Jim Garrison, that the character played by Kevin Costner. This did actually happen. This is a story they wanted to tell. It's just, like, at the end of the day, was it the most interesting story? It was probably the only story to tell without going into like a movie about a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like, it was like the most, um, you know, it's probably the easiest acceptable approach. Well, yeah. And to I talking about this, if you're using, which obviously they did using Garrison as like the protagonist, that's the conclusion that he came to in this investigation. So yeah, 
Um, but what I was going to say, I feel like maybe one of the reasons that it doesn't resonate with us, maybe as much as it did with other people, you know, Oliver Stone kind of had said that part of the reason, like the impetus to make this movie is that this moment in history is like one where there was like a shift in like people trusting the government and feeling that the government may be lying to them. Right. And so for him and I think for people who were around in that time, I think this was a more pivotal moment. Obviously it's a pivotal moment. Like a president was assassinated, but I think to have lived through it, it's more like personal because it is like a shift in thinking because there's statistics that say like by 1964, like most people thought that there was a cover up involved with what happened. Right. And to this day, it's still like 70% of people think that we don't have the full story of what happened. So most, mo and whether they subscribe to Oliver Stone's theory or to something else, or even if they just think like, you know, whatever, most people think that we don't know exactly what happened when the president of our country was killed. Right. Which is crazy. And that's like a crazy, that's a crazy thing to kind of think about, you know? Right. But, um, so I think that, I think obviously for, and obviously in the nineties when that's people, oh, there were a lot more people there who had lived through it, who were like going out to see movies at the time. Right, no, for sure. Like that's the whole thing. Everybody remembers where they were the day JFK was assassinated. Right, and like that is probably like one of the coolest aspects of this movie is kind of like just taking you there and putting you in it. Um, I really appreciate. I really liked and appreciated that. But I just again, I, f I feel like I I, w I wish I would have rather watched a documentary, and have like real life people telling me these things, and you know, using more actual footage and actual photographs and all this stuff. Right, which I think you said something about him. He should have made a documentary. And I feel like watching it, it did feel like he wanted to make a documentary, but he right. didn't feel like people would watch a documentary, so he made this instead. Which is fair. But and that's that goes back to like one of my complaints about it. it just as like as a sorry, piece. I didn't mean it as like I hate documentaries. I just meant like I understand that mentality. Right. Well, people don't see documentaries very much, although I think that's changed with TV. But anyway, um, well, I think with Netflix and HBO, like there's more. Documentaries oh yeah, no, for watching. sure. But um, where was I going? Oh, he wanted to make a documentary. Um, damn it, keep sidetracking me, and then I don't. I'm know sorry. What I'm saying. No, no, I didn't mean to. Uh, I just said I, w I wish it would have been a documentary, and then you went on this whole thing. Uh, yeah, back. All right, getting back into the groove. Getting back into the groove. Um, like I just didn't need to see. You know, like I feel like the only reason you did this is to get representations of like the character Tommy Lee Jones plays or the character Joe Pesci plays. It's just like, without that, we could have probably just interviewed the actual people or, you know what I mean? Or at least. Yeah. And that's, I remember what I was going to say now, but, um, my, one of my critiques of it as a film is that there is so much exposition that needs to be given that it just like full scenes turn into just like giant exposition dumps right. where nothing else is happening. Like there's nothing it's just people standing in a room explaining things that we need to know in order for us to like move on to the next part of the movie, which is just like frustrating. It's, it's not a great way to tell a narrative story in my opinion. No. And I think like the, the, see the again, the biggest problem this movie has is like, then he has like his home life with his wife and his kids and how this case is affecting that at the end of the day. And I'm sorry, like usually I'm very good at empathizing with my characters. Like I don't give a shit about what's going Kevin on Costner. in his family's life. Like, this whole thing is about JFK's assassination. Like, 
I understand putting those more human characterizations in there, but like I'm just trying to okay, let's get back to the case. Right. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like this is so, so uninteresting to me. It's it. a sidetracking. And I know, I understand how movies work. I understand we need to have that. But like that's why a documentary would have been so much better. Yes. Because one, it didn't have to be nearly as long. Yeah. But two, it just would have presented the information, I think, in a in a better way. Mm-hmm. Rather than these dramatizations that were kind of awkward and Mm-hmm. And I do, you know, I said I was going to kind of speak to the the protest that happened at this Oscar ceremony when we talked about the films. This film more so than Silence of the Lambs 2, watching it, I couldn't help but feel like, you know, he was prosecuting uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character, Bertrand or whatever, and um, he who was gay, you know, and there was like a whole undercurrent of like they were prosecuting these men who were leading these double lives and having gay relationships. And like a part of me just felt like, are they glossing over the fact that these were just the easiest people to go after because they were gay? And I feel like they used that against them and the movie like just didn't really delve into that, but that's what it felt like to me. And I feel like that is what happened. I feel like they definitely used it against him in that court proceeding right. and that kind of thing. And I'm just like, mm, that doesn't feel great. Like that doesn't, it feels like something is being glossed over because they want us to side with Garrison. Right. As opposed to like, am I, and I feel like that is an interesting story unto itself. Like that this is the only man who ever got kind of called out for this giant web of conspiracy or whatever, because he happened to be gay. Do you know what I mean? Right. Because he was an easy target. Yeah. But, and I also, the other thought that I had and part of the reason I like had a problem with it is like, I'm watching this movie and I'm like, okay, this is interesting, but like to real, and you know, this was a pivotal moment in people's childhood who grew up and, or whatever, who lived through this. And to like bring that back to like the pivotal moment of our lives of like nine 11, like how would I feel if I was watching a movie trying to convince me that nine 11 was an inside job? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I would be like, well, there are some documentaries out there we could watch. If you I want to be enlightened, want Devin. To. <laughs> if, you, if you want to come to the enlightened side. And I know like a lot joking, more people <laughs> believe that JFK was there. There was conspiracy there than people believe right. that 9-11 well, has a conspiracy. Can, but can Jet Fuel melt steel? That's the real question. Let's not yeah. get into this. <laughs> <laughs> also, Oliver Stone made a, a 9-11 movie. I just want to point that Did out. Did he really? Yeah, World Trade Center. I didn't know that. Oh, man. I don't keep up with Oliver Stone's career. <laughs> Well, it's the first Oliver Stone movie I've ever seen. <laughs> it's pretty. It's interesting. The, the the better part of his career is the early stuff. It always is. <laughs> um, but yeah, JFK in a nutshell. Uh, if you're into conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. you'll like it. And if, if anyone th- wants to know what I think happened, just email us, and I'll let you know. <laughs> uh, so. JFK has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 88% and a critic score of 83%. Um, It hasn't really been named to a lot of the lists that we usually discuss. But in 2012... It's on uh, Kevin Costner's top 10 longest movies. (laughs) (laughs) It's number one. It's a long list. No, the director's cut of Dance with Wolves. That's your director's cut of Dance with Wolves, like four hours long. I wonder if he was in the edit bay on this one too. (laughs) It's like, yeah, we should keep all the scenes that I'm in (laughs) and then just cut other people. Let's cut Vincent D'Onofrio out and just give me more scenes. Half of John Candy would be great. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, John Candy's in this movie. I just want to point that out too. Yes, he is. Jack Lemmon. Walter Matthau. Dude, Jack Lemmon is great in this movie. I really love him. Jack Lemmon is great in every movie. 
That's true. Yes. That's true. We could just like go through the list of people that are in this movie and it's like. Right. This is our new six degrees go to. Yeah. Oh my God. This movie is, was ma- And it's got Kevin Bacon in it. So if you play right, right. six degrees of Kevin Bacon, boom, this is the movie you need. Boom. 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 But as I was saying. Did you in, forget again? No. <laughs> you just, you just keep interrupting me though. In 2012, the Motion Picture Editors Guild listed this film as the ninth best edited film of all time based on a survey of its membership. And at the box office, it made $205.4 million. Isn't that fun? Yeah, is that it? Yeah, that's it. Okay. What's next? Bugsy, directed by Barry Levinson and distributed by TriStar Pictures. You know, when I was, like, putting this list together, like, usually, like, our older episodes, you know, are all, like... There's just like the major suits like MGM and Columbia. I'm like, blah. right. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. Like in the 90s, they're just like, there were became so many more studios. Right. <laughs> and I feel like now, though, it's like going back to 80s, I think, is like when, when it started. So like, many popped up. But I don't know if they were all Oscar contenders necessarily. That's true. All right. So the synopsis for Bugsy it is the story of how Benjamin Bugsy Siegel started Las Vegas. Huh. There you go. That's straight to the point. It is right to the point. The screenplay was written by James Toback from research material by Dean Jennings' 1967 book, We Only Kill Each Other. And um, in the spirit of looking at these films with a 2018 perspective, it should be noted that in 2017, the Los Angeles Times ran an article with 38 women accusing James Toback of sexual harassment or assault. Since the article was published, 395 additional women contacted the publication with further allegations stretching over a 40 year period. And Toback has denied all allegations. Damn. I, now that I looked up a picture of this guy, I know exactly your time. I read about these allegations when they came out. Yeah. They're, it's not great. Which was right after Weinstein, wasn't it? Yeah. It was like, it was right like after weeks Weinstein. after Weinstein. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know who he was though. And yeah, I was like, I saw him and I was like, I've never, I don't know who that is. Like, I don't know what he's done. Right. We did Bugsy. He wrote Bugsy. He wrote Bugsy. And like, Bugsy. Okay, so we have JFK and Bugsy in the same year. Mm-hmm. JFK, everybody knows. Did we assume like people knew who Bugsy was? I don't know. Like I had na- I had heard the name Bugsy Malone thrown around a few times in my life. Sure. What's his but- Bugsy Siegel? Oh, see, then no, I had no <laughs> idea who he was. <laughs> yeah, that is Bugsy well, Siegel. Well, I think um, I think in the Godfather movies, Mo Green is supposed to be like Bugsy, a Bugsy Siegel type. He's supposed to be right. Bugsy Siegel. Okay, but that doesn't really, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, did people know who Bugsy Siegel was? Because, like, again, the logline is the story of how Benjamin Bugsy Siegel started Las Vegas. Is that important, or is it just, like, how Las Vegas got started? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? That's true, and especially since um, they really played with facts there. But um, because (laughs) really another person came up with the idea, and then Bugsy just jumped in on it. So I feel like Bugsy Siegel must have already been like a name people knew for them to like, or I don't, I mean like it's a very cinematic story. He's like a gangster who then like just tries to become like a Hollywood star and like gets yeah. caught up in that and then creates Vegas. Like that's a very, oh, it's definitely interesting. It's a crazy story. Yeah. And then gets killed. Spoiler right. alert. But like, <laughs> spoiler alert, life doesn't end well for most mobsters. No, no. But, um, or any really, or anyone, is that what you're saying? Any, Mobsters, really. Oh, that's what I said. Well, you said most, and I said any. Oh, for any. I was just... Well, I mean, look at The Godfather. Don Corleone just died in his garden with his grandson. That's great. <laughs> this is based on facts. It's, <laughs> it's beautiful. 
It is. You're right. Very cinematic. Again. Henry Hill was a real person who just lived out his life in Florida in the witness protection program. He was fine. He was all fine. <laughs> I don't know if that's like how anybody <laughs> wants to end their life, though. It's just like I'm sure he preferred identity. it to some of the alternatives. Oh, sure. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> that's easy. All right. All right. I have a few more fun facts for you. Hmm. Uh, Warren Beatty first became interested in making a film about Bugsy Siegel in the late 70s because he thought Siegel was a strange emblem of America, an American gangster who was the son of Jewish immigrants who became fascinated with Hollywood and who also envisioned a desert city in which legal gambling was allowed. Doesn't get much more American than that. During casting, Beatty immediately wanted Annette Benning, who he had seen audition for Tess Trueheart and Dick Tracy the previous year, to play Virginia Hill. After seeing her audition, Beatty phoned Levinson, the director, and told him, she's terrific, I love her, I'm going to marry her. Levinson thought Beatty was just excited at her audition, but the summer after filming, Annette became pregnant with their first child, and they were married shortly after he was born, and they are still married today. Wow, so that's really interesting, because, I mean, his character also goes head over heels out of nowhere for this char- for this lady. That's so true, it is kind of like... It's just the same. Warren Beatty, I mean, previous to to marrying Annette Benning really had a reputation of um, being a ladies' man, a player, if you will. Mm-hmm. And but he wanted to settle down with a, his lady? A parent. And then, I mean, as far as we know, he's just been with her for the last like. Oh, are they still 20? together? Yeah, they're still, that's what I just said. It's fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Good for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Annette Benning is um, great. So I don't, like, obviously. I thought you didn't like her. I didn't. Um, and then uh, now I do. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's a true story. Yeah. Do you know the last like everything that I've seen her in has just been great, and so. So why didn't you like her? Is really the question. Um, you know, I'd never seen her in anything. Oh. So you know how like sometimes I just decide I don't like things. Yeah. And that Benning was one of those things. And now that <laughs> I've really gotten to like experience her as an actress, uh, she's great. Singing a different tune. Yeah, no, she's fantastic. <laughs> I see what Warren Beatty was talking about. <laughs> Right on. And if there is one great thing about this movie, man, it is their chemistry. Like their characters yes. together, the back and forth and dialogue, which was very poorly written by this Tobat character. Uh, it's weird he doesn't understand how relationships work. No, but uh, they're, they're, they're just wonderful. Like they work really well. That's the best part of this movie. I don't really, everything outside of those two is, you know, meh for me. But whenever yeah. those two are on screen together in this movie, it's gold. It really is. Like it's it's something really I would, fun to watch. I would narrow that down to just any time Annette Benning is on screen, it's gold. Well, she's and Warren not Beatty very, doesn't she's, ruin it. She's not really on what do you mean? Why was he why would well, he? Well I'm just it? saying like I wouldn't say like, oh, they're really playing well if each other. I'd just be like, She's great and then he doesn't mess it up, so it works. <laughs> you don't think he's good? I really did not like his performance in this movie. Oh, I like it when they were together. I mean, I, I guess I liked their, I mean, their relationship was weird. Yeah. Which was the most interesting but, part of this movie. Yeah. Was the ups and downs of their relationship. Yeah. And Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley's pretty great. Ben Kingsley is great in everything. Sir Ben Kingsley. Sir Ben Kingsley. Yeah. And we don't have to say sir. We like literally revolted against them. So we didn't have to do shit like that. I'm not going to say sir Ben I'm Kingsley. I'm going to pay respect to the people that I admire. So I'm going to call him Sir Ben Kingsley. <laughs> okay. But, um, yeah, no, he's great. And I think that, you know, Warren Beatty, he's fine. I just honestly, like, he was good in, like, the scenes where he's kind of, like, 
you know, he's a shady businessman type thing in the scenes where he's supposed to be like a threatening mobster. I just didn't really feel like he was carrying that off in the same way. I just don't find him like physically threatening. No, no. even when he was like beating a man, I was like, eh, that's weird. I remember when he like made that guy bark like a dog. That was just weird. <laughs> and I was like, I don't. Okay. That was a highlight. Actually. <laughs> I liked that scene a lot. Just because it's so wacky. He just plays this like cartoon character, basically. Yeah. He's a, it's an interesting character. So I can kind of, it like, it's, it makes sense. It would make a good movie. Although it only makes like a decent movie. In it my only opinion. really, at the end of the day, makes a decent movie. Yeah. So I guess that's all we have to say about Bugsy. Or do you have more to say about Bugsy? <laughs> no, I don't really have anything more to say about Bugsy. Yeah. I would say, I mean, like, there's uh, just so many better mobster movies if you're in the... Right. I mean, that. I feel like it only is an Oscar nomination because it checks most of the boxes for the typical People Oscar. like Warren Beatty. Yeah. I don't know. Remember when he ruined last year's Oscars? <laughs> I'm just kidding. It was Faye Dunaway. But, um, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. When they read the oh. wrong thing, it was him and Faye Dunaway. <laughs> I thought you were doing like last year, like from this year. So like the 1990... Never mind. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. Never mind. I got, you. I got what you're saying. I got what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. That was all Faye Dunaway. It was. And then they tried to make it out. Warren Beatty like, did his best. Warren Beatty was like, this is wrong. And Faye Dunaway was just like, la la land. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, the look on his face was so yeah, good. He was like, I don't think that's what's happening. No, no, no. He's, he's fantastic. Yeah. All right. So, so that's enough about that. Well, we're real quick, though. Oh, okay. It has a Rotten Tomato <laughs> audience score of 69% and a critic score of 85%. Um, as far as legacy, it has never been named to anything of note. And at the box office, it made $49.1 million. So, like, Prince of Tides made double Oops. the amount of money that Bugsy did. <laughs> just want to point Oof. that out. I want to look up. Sorry. What was the budget of Bugsy, would you guess? Now, it's a period piece. Keep that in mind. Oh, wait. So is JFK. Okay, never mind. Uh, I'll say, mm, I don't know, like $45 million. Again, thirty million. Thirty. Okay. They used to make movies for a lot cheaper. Like seriously, they could make ten great movies for what they pay for like one superhero movie these days. That's crazy. Right. I mean, it's not like that movie had like poor production value. Like that movie looked good. Yeah, it did. It did. Huh. Okay. Okay, Hollywood. <laughs> All right. So next. Next up is Beauty and the Beast. Beauty Direct. and the. Beast. Directed by Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise. Um, distributed by a little studio known as Disney. Disney. Yep. Synopsis. A young woman whose father has been imprisoned by a terrifying beast offers herself in his place, unaware that her captor is actually a prince physically altered by a magic spell. It's a tale as old as time. It is a tale as old as time. So it is based on the French fairy tale of the same name. And it premiered as an unfinished film at the New York Film Festival on September 29th, 1991, followed by its theatrical release as a completed film on November 13th, which is my birthday. That's That's why I included that fact. And spoiler, this is my favorite Disney movie of all time. It is. It really, she had a bell dress. I've seen pictures. I might post them actually on our Instagram page. That'd be awesome. So look for that. 
Uh, Beauty and the Beast was the second film after The Rescuers Down Under, produced using Computer Animation Production System, also known as CAPS. It's a digital scanning ink, paint, and compositing system of software and hardware developed for Disney by Pixar. And it also is the first film to use a CGI scene, which is the waltz between for sure. Beauty and Beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was also the first animated film ever to be nominated for Best Picture and remained the only animated film nominated until 2009 when the Best Picture field was widened to 10 nominees. And it remains the only animated film nominated for the award when it had five nominations. It became the first musical in 12 years to be nominated for Best Picture following All That Jazz in 1979 and the last one to be nominated until Moulin Rouge 10 years later in 2001. I'm going to start talking about Beauty and the Beast. Please. So, again, this is like a movie where I'm heavily biased. This is actually like we were talking about how young we were in 1991. Right. But Beauty and the Beast is the first movie I ever saw in theaters. So it holds a special place in my movie heart. Yeah. Remember it well. I, my mom tells me the story all the time. Like she wasn't sure if my attention span would be long enough to like watch a full length movie, even though yeah. it's only like 92 minutes or whatever. And so she told me, she's like, if you get bored, like, whatever you want to leave, like, just let me know and we'll go. And so we were watching it. And then, like, you know, towards the end when they're going to go hunt the beast, I, like, got scared. And so I was like, I want to go. <laughs> my mom was <laughs> like, no, it's going to be okay. Just come sit in my lap. So then I, like, sat in her lap Aww. for the rest of the movie. <laughs> I love that. Yes. So um, I'm beating the beast. It was just, um, it was my favorite, favorite Disney movie. I was Belle in the yellow dress for Halloween Me and my other me and my friends who i like went to the babysitter with we all had like my babysitter made us these like bell dresses that were perfect in every way we i wore it for like years as my favorite outfit for it might still be my favorite outfit i wish i still had it but my mom <laughs> gave it away dang i know that's okay <laughs> and, um, but i just i love beauty and the beast and I know, you know, with any kind of like children's movie or Disney movie or blah, 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 you can like pick it apart because it's like kind of crazy and it's weird and like Stockholm Syndrome and like whatever. But like, I just love it. And it's very nostalgic for me. And I still think it's very important. Belle was the first Disney princess to have brown hair and brown eyes. And she liked to read. And even though like the love story may be like a little messed up in general, she's still like comparing it to like other disney princess movies she like gets to know him as a person that's like the whole plot do you know what i mean which i think is like unlike some of them is just like right like with like the little mermaid which was the first that came out before this one was like the first like this is known as oh so this era is like known as like the disney renaissance when they started making like really good movies again and it started with the little mermaid 1989 and this is like the third movie but Mm -hmm. um like Little Mermaid, she just like sees him on the beach and thinks he's cute, and then is like, "I'm gonna abandon my entire family and give up everything that I know because right. this guy is cute." Like, a little problematic. It's super problematic. Whereas, like this, you know, she loves her father, and then she falls in love with Beast, and Gaston is like the embodiment of toxic masculinity, and he gets thrown off a castle, and that's great. <laughs> and uh, I just love it, and I also feel, I mean, like it's it was very pivotal in animation technology advancements you know it used cgi and whatever that caps thing was that i was talking about (laughs) that you explained ever so well right so again that is one that i had better written out in my i swear in my previous one that i wrote i liked it i thought you nailed it i'm surprised we didn't have to retake it 
<laughs> Speaking of, just a little inside the episode again, Devin had to do the intro three times and yeah. then nailed some shit where she had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> Maybe that's the trick to just not know what you're saying and then yeah. you just say the words and it doesn't matter. But um, so yeah, I just, I think it's looking like, you know, they call this period between like 1989 and 1999, the Disney Renaissance, but it's also like our childhood. And so all of those movies, except for the Little Mermaid, like really do hold a really special place in my heart. But this one holds, holds the, the specialist, the specialist place. place. <laughs> Why don't you tell me what you thought about Beauty and the Beast? Eh. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, this is a classic in my childhood as well. My parents claim that it is like the tape that they had to keep replacing because I watched it so many times. Um, yeah. Like, I, I guess I just loved it so, so, so much. However, after a certain age, I don't think I ever watched it again because until we went to go see, like, the 3D re-release a few years ago, mm -hmm. I hadn't seen it since I was a very small child. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's, so it's kind, of, it's kind of, like, trippy watching it because you do realize how much you do you remember from it and, and all this stuff. And, uh, I mean, it's a classic to our generation and other generations for a reason, you know? Um, best picture worthy. That's a debate I'm willing to have. Uh, it was pivotal to the t animation technology. I, and I, and I do agree. I like in the history of the whole thing, I do agree that it is, that it is really important. I do. I do understand that, especially in a day where it's like hard to remember now when we didn't have a best animated feature yeah. film category, you know? So I would imagine this getting nominated for best picture had a lot to do with them creating well, and Disney having a renaissance, perhaps, right, helped right. them create a category for animated features. Drinking game, every time you hear renaissance, take a shot. <laughs> it was a Disney renaissance. <laughs> a Disney-assance, if a Disney, you will. Uh, <laughs> Disney-assance. Uh, but yeah, I mean, wonderful movie. Like, who doesn't know Beauty and the Beast? Like, you know, exactly. you've seen it. You've seen it. You have your own thoughts about it. We're not going to convince you otherwise. No, and as far as, like, as a musical. But maybe give uh, Little Mermaid a rethink. Yeah. yeah. You mean like don't like it? Yeah, like yeah. just you know. No, it's problematic. Question your enjoyment of that movie. It's hella problematic. Okay. Um, as far as like it like taking Beauty and the Beast as just like a musical, it's got like really, really great songs, hands down. It also was the first Disney movie to be made into a Broadway musical. Oh yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. And um and I, I mean so it was also nominated, it was nominated for three best like three songs were nominated for best song. And obviously it won for Beauty and the Beast, as you heard at the beginning of this episode. But also Be Our Guest and Belle were nominated. And I think like all those Be songs. Be Our Guest. I mean, Be Our Guest is like probably one of the best Disney songs of all time, honestly. Yeah. And When You Wish Upon a Star. Sure. If you want to. We'll talk about that at a later episode. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just bring in my own. You said it's one of the best songs. I think that is the, probably the best song. Yeah. Well, I think Disney agrees as they use it as their general intro That's true. music. They do, don't they? They don't they? Um. I also tell just like one more anecdote about my childhood. So I was super into performing songs from Beauty and the Beast for my family and just anyone who happened to come over to our house. And so I really wanted it to be like authentic. So like in the song Belle, she was reading a book and then a, a sheep comes along and, and eats a corner of the page. Oh my God. And I took a book and I ripped a corner of the page. So it would be my authentic Belle singing book. Wow. What book was it? I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's like one of my mom's yeah. books from when she was a kid. 
Dang. So it's like some nice vintage book, and then I like ripped it. Does she know? Yeah, she knows. I oh. performed it for them. I know, but she, does she know prior to you cutting it? Or oh, it? no, she didn't know I was going to do it. No. Oh, that's terrible, Devin. I know. I also, one time, this is just going to turn into me telling you stories about my life. But one time I came, I was performing Belle, and I come out, and like my parents, my mom's family was in town, and so I like, they're sitting there, and I come out with my basket, and I'm singing my little Belle song. And then my cousin, Spencer, who is like, um, he does a lot of theater and he's a great singer and all stuff. He thought it'd be fun to, to join in with me and started singing the part of Gaston. And I got so upset. I ran out of the room and like, wouldn't come out of my bedroom. My mom was like, Oh, you were upset. Cause he sounded like Gaston and you got scared. But I'm like, I think I just didn't like being upstaged. And I was like, <laughs> this is my time Spencer. <laughs> all right. Enough about me. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I'm telling you, Beauty and the Beast is an important part of my life. <laughs> and other people's lives I as have well. to care. They don't. <laughs> I think everybody loved those stories. Don't tell me if you didn't. Okay. It has a Rotten Tomato audience score of 92% and a critic score of 94%. Um, the American Film Institute put it on some lists. On their list of 100 Greatest Passions, a.k.a. Love Stories, is ranked at number 34 on their list of the 100 greatest songs, Beauty and the Beast was ranked at 62 of the song Beauty and the Beast. On their list of the best movie musicals, it ranked at number 22. I believe that's only out of 25, though. And on their lists of 10 top 10, it ranked as the number seven animated film. And it was added to the National Film Registry in 2002. Excellent. And its box office made $425 million. <laughs> yeah. Well, And that was only, what, like number... It was only number three at the box office at 425 yeah, million. That's crazy. See, when more people used to go to the movies, they also like made more money. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Kind of works, yeah. All right. You ready to talk about the winner of Best Picture? Winner, winner, human dinner. <laughs> that was very good. Thank you. The Silence of the Lambs, directed by Jonathan Demi. Produced by Orion Pictures. It's Demi. Is it? No. Oh, I didn't think so. Damn it. <laughs> Wait, what did you say? Orion? Orion. It's Orion. <laughs> that is a fact. I'm See, not... <laughs> I no longer had any confidence in how to pronounce things. All right. Synopsis. A young FBI cadet must receive the help of an incarcerated and manipulative can... What? This sentence got so crazy and I wasn't FBI prepared cadet for it. must receive help from an incarcerated and manipulative cannibal killer to help catch another serial killer, a madman who skins his victims. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> it was adapted by Ted Talley from Thomas Harris's 1988 novel of the same name. With 24 minutes and 52 seconds of screen time, Sir Anthony Hopkins' performance in this movie is the second shortest to ever win an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Leading Role. David Niven in Separate Tables from 1958 beat him at 23 minutes and 39 seconds for shortest time. Sir Anthony Hopkins described his voice for Hannibal Lecter as, quote, a combination of Truman Capote and Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> Which I just love because now that I know that, that's all I can hear when I hear that voice. That's funny. 
Um, and the pattern on the moth's back in the movie posters is not the natural pattern of the death's head hawk moth. It is, in fact, Salvador Dali's In Voluptas Mars, a picture of seven naked women made to look like a human skull. Whoa. Yeah, that's trippy, right? That is pretty trippy. That's all I got to say about it. What do you want to say about... About Silence of the Lambs? Yeah. Or do you want me to start? No, I'll talk about it. Um, made for just under $20 million, by the way. Wow. Damn. Why is it so expensive now? Inflation? Know. Inflation, I guess. Yeah. Mm. But I mean, even if you double this to a $40 million movie, like... Right. You know, they're still not making $40 million movies. So That's crazy. I know. It's ridiculous. Um... So yeah, Silence of the Lambs, man, classic that everybody misquotes, right? Yep. Uh, which I'm surprised you didn't mention. Well, was, like, you know, I had it in my it. original one, probably. Oh, uh, okay, okay, because it's a. Uh, so it's everybody says with, hello, Clarice. Yes, and the line is "Good evening." Good Claire. evening, Clarice. But then in what's the second one, Hannibal? They actually say hello, Clarice, as yeah. like a little nod. A little nod to that misconception. They said next to Casablanca, it's the most famous misquoted line. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Then to play it again, Sam. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dude, Silence of the Lambs. I think we're going to know how my uh, vote ends after this sentence. But uh, as while watching this movie, I literally determined it's like a perfect movie. <laughs> yeah. It checks all the boxes. It is honestly a fantastic exercise in filmmaking from Jonathan to me. It keeps... Jenny. What? Just <laughs> Did I say Demi? It is Demi. It is Demi. Jonathan Demi. Um, it's fucking brilliant. Like he he directed the shit out of this movie. And again, adapted from a novel. I I kind of want to read the original source material now. I wouldn't mind checking yeah. out Thomas uh, J- Thomas Harris Thomas Harris's novels uh, about the character of Hannibal Lecter. But dude, it's fantastic. His use of close ups. He. He even, like, teaches you how to watch the movie. Like, there's scenes where you find out, like, she, like Clarice has caught on to something. And you realize, like, you have to pay attention to what Hannibal says because there's clues in what he says, right? Mm-hmm. So the next time you go back, now you're really listening. And now you, like, catch it with her. And then again, like, you miss it. And it's just, it's fantastic. It teaches you, like, how to watch the movies and how, how like, you're working in Clarice's shoes as a detective to kind of figure this out. Like, it's genius. Like, it, it really teaches you to pay attention closely and kind of admire the serial killer just like she is or like try to get inside of his head or try to understand what he's leading you to like it's fantastic mm-hmm. and it, it teaches you how to do that through how it's made which is incredible um i know there's something you probably want to touch on where it it it, it haunts you and not so much the disturbing images it shows but the reaction of the actors to the disturbing images before even showing you anything, mm-hmm. if at all showing you anything. Yeah. Like it's just certain it, it really dives into the human psyche as much as uh, a movie about this sort of thing should. It's, it's meta in so many ways. Um, I honestly think when with Anthony Hopkins performances, Jody, Jody Foster, heck all the supporting cast is even great in this movie. Yes. I have nothing I have I have nothing to complain about. I think it is absolutely fantastic. I th- again sit, think it's a masterwork uh in cinema and certainly agree that it deserved its best picture win this year. 
Yeah. Um, I have to agree with that. There's like nothing really to critique because, which I guess makes it perfect. Right. And like what you were saying, you know, reading through some of the stuff, there was like a lot of like originally Gene Hackman was, was attached to this film for a long time. And then ultimately when the script was written, he bowed out because he thought it was too violent. And there was like a lot of, a lot of reiteration from a lot of people about how violent this movie was. And like, it was off putting because it was so violent and blah, blah. And obviously um, there is violence in this movie, but there really isn't a lot of shown violence, which kind of like goes into what you were saying. Like they're talking about very violent things. And in a few instances we see some very violent things, but mostly it's just talking about it and then seeing people's reactions to seeing pictures that we never see or reactions to like what happened. And that to me, like I was talking to you about it before off, off mic, but, um, I feel like it's like the psycho effect where people swore in psycho that they saw Janet Lee getting stabbed, even though there's not a single shot of her getting stabbed. And I feel like in this movie, there's so much violence just like in the mood of it that people remember it as being a very violent film when it's really more because like, you know, that's why I kind of like have a problem with even calling it horror, because I think that it's much more suspense. I think it's much more thriller. I think it's the most like it's obviously more horror than any other movie that has ever won Best Picture. Like that's not up for debate. But um. But I do think that it kind of gets remembered as being more violent than it actually was just because the performances are so great. Yeah. And that's really and, uh, and the directing. That's a testament to the filmmaking that they can, can they can like make you feel that level of violence without having to like show you a bunch of gore and whatever else. And, you know, speaking of performances, I mean, Anthony Hopkins obviously is like this is the role of his lifetime like this is his career defining moment in a career that has amazing like amazing performances everywhere like this is still the one that stands out because create this character it is it's one of those things that makes it so fascinating is like he's a despicable monster like he's legitimately a monster Uh and yet you're in the same boat as Clarice where you're still kind of charmed by him and you're still kind of like he's so fascinating and he imbues that character with so much nuance that you can't help but be completely fascinated by him. And also Jodie Foster's performance. You know, I was reading this story, you know, um, the scene where they're talking and he's in the the cage thing. And she tells the story about the lambs being slaughtered. Yes. Originally that was, she was supposed to be telling the story. Then it's supposed to cut to like a flashback scene of her as a kid with the lambs. But then after Jonathan Demme saw her performance telling that story he was like i don't need to show any flashbacks like that's all we need is right and that whole movie works as a testament to that fact yes exactly it's fantastic i i mean i don't i feel like i feel like this is what happens is like when i don't like a movie i have so much to say about it because i just like complain about everything but when a movie is great there's there's very little to actually say because it's just reiterating over and over again about how great it was And this is a movie, you know, I was saying there's only a handful of, there's only three films that have ever won the five major categories of the Oscars. And, um, I think to look, you have to see if a movie did that, like that means it really is like above anything else. Do you know what I mean? Because it did have the best screenplay and it did have the best directing and it did have the best acting and it was the best picture. Do you know what I mean? Right. They got it right that year. Exactly. They really got it right. 
all around. They didn't try to please multiple parties. They, I think everyone was pleasantly surprised Mm -hmm. and awarded them accordingly. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say? Do you want me to tell you some facts and figures? Throw some facts at us, Devin. Well, Silence of the Lambs has a Rotten Tomato audience score of 95% and a critic score of 95%. As for its legacy, the American Film Institute on their original list of the 100 best films ranked it at number 65, and 10 years later, they ranked it at number 74. On their list of the 100 greatest thrills, it ranked at number five. On their lists of the 100 greatest heroes and villains, Clarice Starling was ranked as the number six hero, and Hannibal Lecter was ranked as the number one villain. Amen. And on the lists of the 100 greatest quotes, you know the quote I'm talking about, ranked at number 21. Hello, Clarice? No, <laughs> not that one. It's the, I ate his liver with some fava beans oh, and a nice candy. And they also the they had another line that was nominated that didn't get on there when at the end when he says I have to go I'm having an old friend, friend for, for dinner. dinner. <laughs> Such a good line. So fucking good. Uh, it was also Sounds Lands was also preserved in the National Film Registry in 2011. Cool. And at the box office it made 272.7 million. Is the rule it has to be like 20 years after it's released or is, is there any kind of rule like that? I'm not sure. I, think, I do find it interesting that it's 20 years after it's released it's put into the film registry. Well, but um, Beauty and the Beast was put in there in 2002, and they came out in the same year, obviously. Well, maybe it wasn't as important. This wasn't as important as Beauty and the Beast? Because they didn't have any uh, pivotal technology yeah. advancements there for you animation. Go. Oh, that's true. You're saying Beauty and the Beast was 10 years? or Yeah. Yeah. Damn, I don't know. They, yeah. had, to, they had to make sure that Cap's technology yeah, wasn't, you know, didn't dissolve. I'm saying they Beauty and the Beast got in there earlier. No, oh, I know. They had to get it in there early because that caps uh, technology, you know. Okay. Had to be they had to preserve the it. Caps. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. They're, They're probably too scared delicate. to watch Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. They were like, I don't want to know. <laughs> right. All right. So you kind of already gave away your your pick. You think that they got it right? That this is the best movie of 1991. Yeah. Okay. I don't think I know. I agree. The Academy knew what they were doing in 1991. This is. By far the best out of the nominees. Yeah. But were there better movies that weren't nominated? No. Well, no. we're going to find oh, out. You, let me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I thought you were asking me. We don't know yet. We haven't watched them yet. Oh, yeah. Next week, we will be having a supplemental episode where we will be discussing some other movies that came out in 1991 that were not nominated for Best Picture mm-hmm. that maybe were better than Silence of the Lambs. We don't know. We haven't seen them yet. There you go. We haven't even picked them yet, so I can't even tell you what they are. We have no idea. Nope. Although I did during this episode change my pick. Oh, did you? Yes, I did. Do you want to share with the people what we're watching then? No. Okay. I do want to tell a story when I was a child. See, I, I used to dress like Hannibal Lecter and perform for my parents. That's uh, terrifying when you were like two years <laughs> old. <laughs> yeah, they loved it. They they ate it up. <laughs> Does that sound like I was getting further away? <laughs> All right, I'm tired. I'm sorry. Yeah, we should maybe call this a day. <laughs> uh, we came in listening to the best song winner, Beauty and the Beast. And while I would never argue that that song did not deserve to win best song, because obviously it did. It's a fucking classic. But in the spirit of just spreading some love a little bit around, 
we're going to go out listening to be our guest from Beauty and the Beast. So we'll see you next week. Good evening, audience. Be our guest. Be our guest. Put our service to the test. Tie your napkin round your neck, sherry, and we provide the rest. Soup du jour, hot hors d'oeuvre. Why, we only live to serve. Try the gray stuff. It's delicious. Don't believe me? Ask the dishes. They can sing. They can dance. After all, miss, this is France. And a dinner here is never second best. Go on, unfold your menu, take a glance, and then you'll be our guest. We our guest, be our guest. Beef ragu, cheese souffle, pie and pudding on flambe. We'll prepare and serve with flair a culinary cabaret. You're alone and you're scared, but the banquet's all prepared. No one's gloomy or complaining while the flatware's entertaining. We tell jokes, I do tricks with my fellow candlesticks. Put it solid, perfect taste that you can best. Come on and lift your glass. You've won your own free pass to be our guest. If you're stressed, it's fine dining, we suggest. Be our guest, be our guest, be our guest.